Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. Under President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey has changed its global positioning system in two important and to some extent overlapping ways. A longtime member of NATO, an alliance created to contain Soviet ambitions, Ankara has recently moved somewhat away from Washington and Brussels and towards Moscow. And as a regional power, Turkey has assumed a proactive policy in the Levant, the Mediterranean, the Caucasus and the Balkans. Are these ventures or adventures? Is Turkey better off with this break with national traditional policies? To discuss this topic, we're joined from Istanbul in Turkey by Mr. Yusuf Erim, who is TRT World's editor-in-large. Welcome. Thank you. Also joining today's program is Dr. Khaytan Konyan Arochak, who is a research fellow at the uh, Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security at uh, Tel Aviv University. Welcome. Thank you. And with me in the studio here is a TV7 analyst, Mr. Amir Oren. And I'd like to immediately dive into uh, today's topic. Amir, give us a broader understanding on the latest pertaining to Turkey's regional and global standing for that matter. Well, first of all, one uh, must uh, mention the humanitarian crisis following the earthquake, the uh, many casualties, and uh, hopefully Turkey uh, will recover uh, from that and uh, take care of its uh, wounded and the uh, devastation. Indeed. Now, as regards the uh, uh, global policy adopted by Turkey, if one looks back um, in an overview, one may say that for many years, Turkey was uh, in a defensive and reactive mode because of the fear of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And um, uh, one may all also say that even the invasion of Cyprus in 1974 was because um, uh, Greece was ruled by the uh, junta, by the colonels. Um, And under Erdogan, this has changed. Of course, he has now been in power for 18 years, first as prime minister, now as uh, president. And when one looks at uh, the entire area Uh, Let's uh, put it in maritime terms. You see the Mediterranean, you see the Black Sea, you see the Caspian, and one can look at at the Balkans, at the uh, South Caucasus, at the Levant, everywhere. There are, um, one may say, fillers sent by Turkey in a proactive way. The, um, uh, and uh, even Bulgaria, for instance, uh, had to remind Turkey that when Erdogan uh, listed several cities which were under the Ottomans but are no longer within Turkey, he also mentioned um, a Bulgarian uh, town as part of the spiritual Turkey, uh, which, of course, speaks to the uh, ambitions or at least the vision of a greater Turkey harking back to Ottoman times. Right now, the um, uh, most current uh, crisis has to do with Nagorno-Karabakh, the um, uh, Turkish help to Azerbaijan. But there is also the constant crisis with Greece 
over the uh, Mediterranean, uh, the uh, resource-rich Mediterranean now having to do with gas, in Libya, in Syria, where uh, it confronts Russia. And one can go on and on. Um, wherever you look, uh, if you uh, are standing right now in Istanbul, as Yusuf is, you see that there are confrontations all around. Not to forget, of course, the jabs going back and forth between President Erdogan and President Macron from France. Uh, I'd like to ask you, uh, Mr. Erim, when we're talking about the the current situation in Turkey, to what degree is there popular support for the current policies? I actually hear uh, from within Ankara a lot more voices speaking about uh, uh, growing support rather than diminishing support with regard uh, to the Eastern Mediterranean, for instance, or the support to Azerbaijan, uh, from voices that were not so positive towards the Turkish leader just several months back. And uh, on the other hand, we hear a lot of frustration with uh, uh, the rhetoric towards the United States and uh, towards Israel also, uh, and uh, uh, encouraging to to alter shift or shift the uh, uh, the current standing of, of Turkey with regard to its actions there. How do you see everything developed on that stage? Well, first of all, it's very, very important to uh, decipher between what's a government policy and what's state policy. Now, state policy is more permanent. Government policies can come and go and change with the governments. Uh, a state policy for Turkey is to protect the territorial integrity of its neighboring countries, because unfortunately, once these territorial integrities start to fracture, it's like a communicable disease in the Middle East. And Uh, that's a national security issue for Turkey. So Syria was a national security issue for Turkey. And I uh, truly believe that uh, if there was another government in place, they would have taken the same decisions as well. So uh, some of these uh, government policies shouldn't just be reduced to Erdogan as uh, the view from the West. Uh, many Western analysts say, well, if Erdogan wasn't there, we wouldn't have to deal with this. No, that's not the case. Syria would be the same. Nagorno-Karabakh helping Azerbaijan. This is, again, a state policy. It doesn't matter who's in power, the AKP, the MHP, the CHP, they all will support Azerbaijan. Uh, Libya is a little more of a government uh, policy. Now, Libya is an expansionist, and not an expansionist, an expeditionary uh, military operation. Now, this is beyond Turkey's comfort zone normally. Uh, this is something that the Turkey of 20 years ago didn't have the capabilities to do, but uh, the growing defense sector, the indigenous defense sector, uh, Turkey becoming a drone power, gave it the capabilities. Erdogan took a gamble, and it looks like Libya is paying off very, very handsomely for Turkey. Uh, they had a very strong argument protecting the government of national court over there, and as such was able to expand its maritime territory with a very, very important maritime deal with the government of national court over there. Now, as for Turkey's relationship with the West, uh, Turkey's been a member of NATO, I believe, what, 60 years now, 70 years now? And the West is written in Turkey's DNA. It may shift to the East at times, but it's still anchored in the West. It will only shift as long as that chain allows it to shift to the East. It's still anchored in the West. Its interests still lie in the West. But to not have a good relationship with the superpower on your near abroad like Russia, And for the United States to look at the Turkey-Russia as a black and white uh, uh, as a black and white issue, uh, that's not fair for Turkey. 
unfortunately, things in the Middle East and Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe are not black and white. There are actually many, many different shades of gray. And the Turkey-Russia relationship is a very important shade of gray for both Moscow and Ankara. Indeed. Dr. Konya Nawachak, your uh, perceived uh, view on this? Well, uh, from my understanding, uh, the Turkish uh, position in Azerbaijan, I agree with uh, Mr. Arim, it's a state policy, but I also think that it is very much related with the Turkish domestic policy. Let us not uh, forget that Mr. Erdogan uh, forged uh, an alliance with the Turkish Nationalist uh, Movement Party. Uh, so, uh, from my understanding, he needs uh, that alliance at home, and uh, given the Turkish historiography uh, on uh, the Armenians and the historical rivalry between the Turks uh, and the uh, Armenians, uh, from my understanding, uh, he is using the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, as, as an opportunity in order to divert the public attention from the coronavirus crisis, from the unemployment, and for uh, his, uh, let me say, uh, real headaches. Uh, so uh, in this regard, uh, he's uh, possessing a very uh, um, aggressive uh, foreign policy. He is active uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean. Again, uh, Greeks uh, are considered as historical rivals. And uh, when we are looking at uh, the issue with France, so uh, again, Mr. Erdogan is uh, tagging himself as presenting himself as the ultimate defender of the whole Muslims uh, in the world. And if we are uh, paying attention, he is trying to personalize uh, this conflict with uh, with President Macron rather than France. And he, from my understanding, he is hoping uh, to see that uh, Mr. Macron will lose the elections and instead. Uh, if a new president will be will come to uh, the palace of Elysee, so uh, from my understanding, he will uh, he will also normalize his relations with France. And uh, let us not forget, uh, as far as the uh, relations with France is concerned, uh, the recent measures that President Macron uh, mentioned uh, is a very crucial step uh, against Turkish foreign policy. Uh, as we all know, uh, the Turkish Directorate of Religious Affairs, uh, they are dispatching every year uh, imams uh, to, uh, to France, to Germany. So in case that France will ban uh, these imams, uh, it will uh, create a, a new example for also other uh, nation states uh, in European Union, and it will create a domino effect which will uh, basically create a huge headache for Ankara because uh, thanks to the Directorate of Religious Affairs, Ankara is uh, has an enormous uh, influence on the Turkish diaspora. So uh, this is um, something uh, big-rooted and uh, what we are seeing today uh, is only the, the tip of the iceberg. Mr. Arim, your response? I think uh, what's going on between Turkey and France is a lot bigger than just appointing a couple of imams. I think uh, what's playing out with this power competition, uh, especially in North Africa, Turkey slowly rolling into areas that are uh, known to be France's backyard, areas of their uh, former colonial power, uh, especially Libya. Uh, now Turkey getting deeper and deeper into the Sahel and Maghreb, meeting with these uh, African leaders, uh, improving relations with Algeria, Tunisia. Again, these are French stomping grounds. And Turkey's offering a lot more to these African leaders and to these African nations, not just the exploitation of resources. They're offering training, they're offering education, they're offering schooling, they're offering symmetric, uh, symmetric relations and symmetric uh, trade opportunities as well. And 
many of these African nations are getting tired of what's going on. So uh, Macron does not want to be the French leader that loses uh, North Africa for the French because it is a very important piggy bank for Paris. So I think that this uh, step by Erdogan to make Turkey's presence and influence felt in uh, uh, an area that Fran France normally monopolizes has definitely spooked Paris uh, big time. And uh, Macron is trying to find ways to lash out at Erdogan, trying to stop and put stumbling blocks in front of him, slow down Turkey's speed as it continues to reach its arms deeper and deeper into Africa. Dr. Konya Nowotchuk, your response to that? Well, um, I do agree with Mr. Erim. Um, uh, this rivalry is also, we can see this rivalry also in Libya, in Lebanon, in Eastern Mediterranean. It's not a secret that uh, the two countries have clashing interests. Uh, I agree, uh, but uh, again, from my understanding, uh, the most important issue for Mr. Erdogan now, uh, that it is uh, causing him to raise his voice, from my understanding, is the Turkish diaspora in Europe. Indeed. Mr. Owen? There are uh, two uh, separate themes here. One is religion and the other is strategy. Uh, one cannot avoid the impression, and the Turks are right to be offended because of it, that France and other countries have been blocking Turkey's entry into the European Union because they did not want um, a, a very big Muslim country with equal voting rights because of its population in a Christian union. This is unavoidable. And Turkey has been the only Muslim member of NATO, a very, very faithful member. It contributed the largest land contingent in the Korean War. It housed American medium-range missiles, the Jupiters, which the Americans took out of Turkey in exchange of the Soviets taking their own missiles out of Cuba in the 1962 uh, crisis. And right now, uh, we see that the Americans are trying to walk back from the crisis, which was created after the Turks had no alternative but to buy the S-400 system, after the Americans refused to sell their own. And we see that the Americans are saying, yes, uh, we canceled the F-35 contract, but we are not going to have any sanctions yet because there is no timeline in the legislation. All we are asking the Turks right now is not to operationalize the S-400 system. So there are um, fillers, there are approaches in order to defuse the crisis. Indeed. Mr. Arim, to what degree uh, is the, the acquisition of the S-400 uh, a contentious matter uh, between Ankara and Washington from Turkey's perspective rather than uh, uh, the U.S. perspective? Well, from Turkey's perspective, the S-400 was not the first choice. They wanted to buy Patriots. When the Patriot deal didn't happen, they went to China. They tried to buy an air defense system from China. That fell apart. And then they ended up buying the S-400. So S-400 was the third choice. Now, uh, Turkey has stated on many, many occasions that this is going to be a standalone operating system. It's not going to be integrated into NATO's uh, radar system. So it's not a threat to NATO. And uh, Turkey has offered to have 
technical working groups on the matter with the Americans to ease their concerns. But America doesn't seem to be taking steps towards the S, uh, S-400. And the S-400 seems to be very, very convenient for America, actually. They're using right now sanctions as a sort of Damocles just hanging over Turkey's head. And uh, it's something that it looks like Congress will use in the future as well uh, to threaten Turkey with sanctions anytime it sees something that's not going to happen. But uh, I don't think Turkey's going to keep uh, the S-400s in the box. This is definitely something that it's going to use, especially as the Eastern Mediterranean heats up. Uh, we've already seen the S-400s tested out in Sinop, and I expect them to most likely be positioned along the Aegean and Mediterranean coast. Indeed, which uh, faces other NATO allies of Turkey itself. Uh, this uh, raises questions. To what degree was this acquisition actually, even though, uh, according to the timeline, it was indeed the third option for Ankara, uh, to what degree was this uh, implemented in uh, Turkey's defense uh, uh, infrastructure in order to basically also deter its its Western uh, uh, neighbors, which happen to be also NATO allies. Well, I think it's very important to remember that throughout the Syrian conflict, there have been over 700 missiles that have entered Turkish territory. Turkey didn't have any type of air defense. So air defense was a necessity. So I don't really think this was meant to deter NATO allies. Uh, it was a necessity. Now Turkey has some indigenous air defense uh, delivered the Hisar-A system, and also in the pipeline, Hisar-O, which is a mid-range, uh, and a Hisar-U coming out in three years, which will be a long-range air defense. And that will definitely ease up uh, Turkey's need for an air defense and allow some type of layering for air defense. But uh, when we think about what's happened in Iraq over the past decade, what's happened in Syria over the past decade, what's happened in Ukraine over the past decade, in Crimea over the past decade, these are all Turkey's neighbors and all conflicts, uh, there could be more. And uh, Georgia could heat up, Azerbaijan is heated up, something could happen in Iran. So there's this constant threat of some type of kinetic engagement going on on Turkish borders. So uh, I highly doubt purchasing the S-400 was a message to NATO or meant to be a threat to NATO. Mm -hmm. uh, Jonathan, there is another strategic issue and that is the Inchilik airbase. The Americans uh, have grown tired of fearing that each time there is a crisis in U.S.-Turkey relationship, uh, the base would uh, stop uh, acting for a while. Or even if there is a domestic Turkish uh, problem like the coup uh, a few years back. So right now, uh, the State and Defense Departments are looking for other options. This ties in with the general American withdrawal from uh, bases, from permanent bases in the region. They are probably going to take all of their planes out of Inchilik in the next few years and perhaps send them back on an expeditionary basis, sometimes to a Greek airbase, sometimes to a Turkish airbase if the Turks allow it. But they don't want it to be a constant fear Constant concern on the part. Despite the fact that Washington Jonathan. officials have repeatedly said that they would not withdraw and that everything uh, that uh, has to do in the media about the Inchilik uh, uh, base was actually not true? Well, only uh, a few days ago, the uh, Assistant Secretary of State for Political and Military Affairs, R. Clark Cooper, who came back from Athens 
from Cyprus and from Bulgaria, but did not go to to Turkey. He said that um, his uh, colleague from the uh, European uh, Bureau at State went there. But um, what Cooper did was, uh, among other things, look for options, either in Greece or elsewhere. And um, of course, it will have to take a political decision to implement it. Dr. Konya Narochak, I'd like to ask you uh, uh, a point about the S-400 surface-to-air missiles, which is the most sophisticated Russian-made uh, surface-to-air missiles or anti-air uh, missiles. Uh, Mr. Erim says something legitimate. This was the third option uh, during the Iraq invasion. Uh, the uh, uh, Turkish military had to uh, be very reliant, heavily reliant on uh, defense systems uh, that were sent from the Netherlands and from uh, other NATO member states. And uh, it, it basically, even though it's a major uh, partner of Uh, NATO, it never was really equally treated in the matter of uh, military acquisitions. So now that Ankara is shifting its its acquisitions to to Moscow, why would this be a, a surprise to Washington or other European powers? Well, uh, I agree with you, and I also agree with Mr. Erim. Uh, I also would like to uh, emphasize here uh, a, a very interesting historical fact. Mr. Erim uh, told that uh, the Turkish armed forces conducted uh, the tests of the S-400s in the uh, in the Sinop uh, military base. Uh, let me just remind you uh, that particular uh, base was uh, established by the U.S. Uh, against the USSR during the Cold War, and at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. withdrew from uh, that particular air, uh, that particular base. And uh, the Turkish armed forces made that particular base uh, as its own uh, missile uh, launching site. So uh, from my understanding, this is very, something very symbolic because uh, a base that was uh, designed against the USSR or Russia uh, is today hosting a, a missile system uh, that, that is made in Russia. Okay, so this is the first thing. Uh, from my understanding, uh, the uh, European and let me say the NATO concerns are uh, originated in what is going on in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, the Turkish armed forces uh, already produced its own identification friend and foe systems. And uh, they, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they, they are using it uh, since 2010. Uh, moreover, I would like to remind you that uh, last year uh, the Turkish Armed Forces conducted uh, a very impressive military drill uh, in Black Sea, in Aegean Sea and in the Mediterranean Sea called uh, the Blue Homeland. And uh, one of the scenarios uh, in, in this particular drill was shooting down the F-16 planes and also shooting down the UAVs and uh, even uh, to uh, occupy an enemy island. So I would like to ask you, let us uh, let us think out loud. Who has UAVs uh, in this whole uh, Eastern Mediterranean? The answer is Greece, Israel. Uh, who has an island uh, uh, in, in the whole region? Greece. Uh, who has... Um, F-16 planes, Israel, Egypt, Greece. So from my understanding, uh, of course, if I was a decision maker in Athens uh, or Jerusalem or in Cairo, I would think um, I would think twice. I mean, this is not 
uh, this does not sound so sincere. If these, um, I mean, if the Turkish armed forces is a NATO uh, ally, so from my understanding, they should not conduct such uh, such exercises. And, and we don't have very much conducting such exercises. So from my understanding, that they are shifting the axis of the Turkish foreign policy, but it doesn't mean that Turkish foreign policy is going into the Russian waters. For instance, only, if I'm not mistaken, like approximately two weeks ago, the Turks also signed a military deal with the Ukrainians. It means that Turkey is declaring its, um, its, it's declaring its independence uh, also from Russia and also from the United States. Uh, on some days, uh, Ankara pleases Washington. On some days, uh, Washington, uh, Ankara pleases Moscow. And on some days... Uh, from my understanding, Ankara uh, displeases both of the capitals and doing what it's uh, what it really wants. Indeed, I, I'd, I'd like to know that we don't have very much time, so I'd like uh, Mr. Rim to be able to respond, and we'll have to come back to this topic because we didn't touch on many issues pertaining to Turkey's foreign policy. Uh, Mr. Rim, please. Well, first of all, Turkey has been uh, conducting military drills. Uh, with Greece as a scenario since I can remember. Uh, Turkey and Greece are historical rivals and military drills are uh, preparation. And when you view national security threats and possible war scenarios in your region, uh, Greece has always been a possible war scenario for Turkey. So I don't view that as shifting. I view that as military preparedness. And uh, uh, it's uh, definitely a drill that always needs, needs to be undertaken because you never know what the future can bring. Uh, when it comes to Turkey flexing its muscles and being independent, definitely. Uh, improving the relationship with Moscow was a hedge against Washington. Uh, improving the relationship with Kiev is a hedge against Moscow. And uh, this is very, very important to be able to have counterbalances to these relationships with superpowers. Otherwise, the relationship gets very asymmetric in nature. But when these uh, capitals understand that you have alternatives, uh, the, it brings a lot of symmetry back into the relationship. Uh, it prevents uh, these superpowers from bullying Turkey. So very important for Turkey to keep its uh, portfolio, uh, foreign policy portfolio open and uh, as diverse as possible. And I see that as a very, very big positive for Turkey going forward, the way the foreign ministry is undertaking these relationships and continuing to keep them very, very strong. Indeed. Well, unfortunately, we don't have uh, enough time, but a closing statement from you, Mr. Owen. Well, Turkey has uh, many interests and many projects uh, in the region, in the larger region, but it does not have many allies, uh, except for Qatar and perhaps the uh, Hamas regime in Gaza, because of their uh, common support of the Muslim Brotherhood. Almost all other regional uh, powers are arrayed against uh, Turkey. So uh, we can see, for instance, that in the Idlib area, the Russians have uh, not hesitated to hit at uh, Turkish or Turkish-affiliated troops. Well, unfortunately, this is all the time that we have for today. So I'd like to thank Mr. Erim and Dr. Konya Narochak for joining us for today's panel. I'd like also to thank our TV7 analyst, Mr. Amil Oren, and to thank our viewers as well. And we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. 
For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.